Good evening. If you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to join us in 1 John, that little epistle in the back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look at one of those perplexing issues in our lives. What do we do with sin? As a believer, what do we do with sin? And I don't think there's probably more, uh, a more uh, interesting, if not confusing passage in uh, all of the Word of God if it's not uh, 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. And so we're going to read that tonight, and then we're going to try to understand what it's saying. And it has a direct bearing on a number of things. First of all, our daily lives. Secondly, the assurance of our salvation. And uh, we want to be sure and clear about what it says. Because when you read it, it seems to go against everything we read in Scripture about sin and sin in the believer's life. So uh, John writes in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who has been born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and uh, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. What a confusing scripture. For John writes in first, uh, John, the first chapter in verse 8, he said, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Sounds contradictory. When you come to a passage of Scripture, no matter where it is, and you find a little bit of confusion or you don't quite understand it, always remember this principle to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You don't interpret Scripture by some, what somebody says or what they might believe. You go to the Word of God and find some attendant passage to figure out what this is. But it's a difficult passage. It really is. And it's made difficult because we all know that we have sins in our lives. We commit sins from time to time, voluntary sins, involuntary sins. We lose our temper. We don't do the right thing when we could do the right thing. And so sometimes it just is almost overwhelming. And yet he writes here seemingly that if we are in Christ, we don't sin. Well, if you interpret that, you can interpret that a number of ways. First of all, you can interpret it literally and just say, well, I don't have any sin. I have relatives that uh, have come under this kind of teaching. And so what they say is, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and so I don't sin anymore. But all you have to do is live around them for a little while, and you know that's not true. And they know it's not true. And what it does is heap guilt upon them and failure upon them and makes them question their salvation all of the time. And so subsequently, they're saved a lot. Uh, they come through a repentance and they think they get saved again. Then they lose that because they're sinning and then they get saved again. Well, that's not the way we're to live our lives. That's not really scriptural, is it? And then I guess we could say that we, uh, we, uh, are just, we just sin and that's just the way it is. But the blood of Jesus Christ takes our sins away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. 
So one, we minimize sin, or maximize sin rather. On the other, we minimize it by saying, well, it's just not important. What happens there when you enter into that is you begin to rationalize your sin. You begin to compromise and say, well, I'm like everybody else. God knows my heart's okay. Uh, It's just a sin, but Jesus forgives us of all sin. I don't really have to worry about how I'm living because if I acknowledge anything else, then I'm going to live in constant defeat. You can live in constant confusion where you say, well, I don't understand. I, you know, I know I sin, but I, this passage says that, you know, if I do that, I'm not really abiding in the Lord. And so what is the answer for us there? Well, I think there's a number of things. First of all, we have to understand the context. And we read that in the first three verses of the chapter. Can I read those for us tonight? See how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, watch this, purifies. That's an interesting way he writes that. Continually purifies himself just as he is pure. So now we understand, don't we, uh, who we are who we are in Christ. You, you got into Christ, not by any merit of your own and uh, anything you did to uh, prove that uh, or to prove to God that you're worth his salvation. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter two, that we are lost. We are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're overcome by three incredible forces in this world that we can't do anything about. It keeps us in a dead state, meaning dead in our relationship to God. We can't get back to him. There's such a separation and a deadness in our lives that we in and of ourselves cannot get back to him. And so we're overcome by by the world. We're overcome by this world system, this world age that doesn't acknowledge God. And we see it and we feel it. We read it and and we suffer because of that. We're overcome by the devil. The Bible says we're right there in Ephesians chapter 2 that the spirit of uh, uh, of the sons of disobedience, the power and the sons of disobedience works in our lives to keep us in that dead state. We walk in that dead state to God. We're alive, but we're not alive to God. And then it says we uh, we're dead because of the lust of the flesh and of the mind. Our, our minds are messed up and we have this flesh in our lives that rebels against the Lord at every turn. And so we're dead. And if you're dead, you can't do anything. If you're dead to God, you can't do anything to get back to him. You can know he's out there, but you'll never find him. You can know that he created the earth, but you won't know anything about who he is. You, you might know that there's a, there's a good force in this world that you might call God, but it will never be a personal force because you're dead to God. Until God reveals himself and begins to work in our lives, the Bible says that very clearly in Ephesians. It says, but God, that is we're dead, but God did something. But God, it says, uh, he loved us and he showed us mercy. Out of that love, he showed us mercy. And out of his mercy, he showed us love. And he did three very important things that we would call salvation. The Bible says, first of all, he made us alive. We were dead, but God did something to make us alive. If your Christianity depends upon your confession of faith or your understanding that there's a God and Jesus died on the cross or whatever else, you may or may not be alive. This is a supernatural act of a sovereign, triune, loving God who in his mercy makes us alive, brings us to life, and then we understand him because we understand our own sins in reference to him. 
We don't compromise with sin anymore. We don't try to excuse it anymore. We don't try to act like it's not there anymore. All of a sudden we are alive. We are alive to the message and the word of the gospel. And we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But he said, not only did he make us alive, he raised us up. We were dead and we were alive, but he raised us up. We see it in baptism all the time. He said, we are buried in Christ. Our sins are buried. Our old life is buried. We're raised to walk in a new life. And then it says something amazing. Not only did he make us alive, not only did he raise us up, but the Bible said he seated us. He gave us a seat immediately in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You already have a seat in heaven if you're a believer tonight. You don't have to worry about that because you didn't do anything to get it. If it's dependent upon me, I'm too up and down. And we know this about this passage is very important. That salvation comes, even if it's a long process, in an instant. Where we are saved, we're reading the Bible and we trust Jesus Christ. Or, or we're in a, in a church service or a vacation Bible school assembly and we trust Jesus Christ. It happens in an instant, but our purification doesn't happen in an instant. It takes a long time. Justification, salvation is in an instant. Sanctification is over a long process of time with many, many ups and downs and failures and successes and whatever else. So what is he talking about here? What is exactly going on here? Well, he said, look, one day we're going to be like Jesus Christ because what God has done. God has made us alive and raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places and began this process of transformation in our lives. And although we right now don't know what Jesus is going to look like when he appears, we're going to look like him because of what he's doing in our lives. Now he says, because of that, it's important to understand what the nature of sin and lawlessness happens to be. I think it is important to just sort of put a little pause right now and remember that our behavior, our behavior outwardly is certainly an index or an indication of the relationship that we have got with God inwardly. Let me just read a few verses in chapter two that sort of mark this out for us. And you don't have to turn to them. I'll read them. In 1 John 2 and 3, it says, by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And instead of rebelling against the commandments or, or dismissing them or trying to make them compromised or saying stuff like this, we hear this all the time now. Oh, well, well Paul wrote that about uh, uh, women submit, submitting and uh, the qualifications of deacons. and what, that's, in, that's in that period of time. That doesn't have anything to do with us right now. That's a compromise. That's wrong. The commands of the Lord, that we love one another. Those commands are, it can't be violated. And if we're believers, we understand that. Listen to this. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He writes further in that chapter in verse 15. Don't love the world, nor the things of the world. If, any, if one loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And I think that's uh, pretty plain. In verse 29, he writes this. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. All right, so we are born again. We were dead, but we have rebirth in Christ. And we know that we have this destiny with Christ. We shall be like him. We have this place reserved in heaven. We didn't do that. He did all of that. And so now, what are we, what are we to make of this sin? It's very important that we know 
really the way he wrote this, the way John wrote this, and I think it's important. Now, you know, in, the, in, in, in John, he does this. In 1 John especially, he gets a topic and then he goes off and then he comes back to that topic and goes a little deeper and he goes off and he comes back to that topic and goes a little deeper. So it's kind of like this when you read the book. So he's coming back to this thing about sin in our lives. And what he's basically saying is because we have this destiny in our lives and because God, through his power, is purifying us, we're purifying ourselves by doing what God says, he says there's some things that just don't belong in our lives. So look at the first verse four. It's very important. Everyone who practices sin, sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Those are two very important words. But if you'll notice in my translation, it says this, and everyone who practices sin. So the way he writes this is this. If you, the one, the person who continually practices sin, the person who continually does this with no remorse, no, uh, no repentance, no confession is somebody who doesn't know anything about what the rebirth is. But there's another word here that qualifies that for us. So if sinning is the outward working, is the committing of the act of sin, this thing, lawlessness, is very important for us to realize. Lawlessness is the spirit within us. It's that frame of mind that says, I, I don't care what God says. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if I want to enter into sin... A, I don't believe God will ever uh, uh, be mad at me. I think he saved me. Or B, I don't have any sin to begin with. That's just the way I am, and God's covered me. John said, oh, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. This comes out of the spirit, the heart of a person. And the heart of a believer would never practice sin, would never continually say, I'm just going to do this. Now, that doesn't discount the fact that we sin in a day. That doesn't discount the fact that sometimes there's a season of sin and we battle that one particular sin in our lives, maybe almost for a lifetime. Like Paul would say in Romans chapter seven, the things that I want to do, I just find I don't do those things. And the things I want to avoid, guess what? That's what I do. I, I'm, I'm given to that. That's what our flesh would do. That's what our world would tempt us to do. That's what the devil would tempt us to do. And he said, the person who has this spirit of lawlessness that doesn't care about anything of God, it is a person that doesn't know what the rebirth or the new birth happens to be. I sin, but I don't like it. Uh, you sin, but we don't like it. We're saddened by it. Sometimes we just get sorrowful because we just, we can't get out of it. Uh, we repent. We confess our sins. If you didn't do that, if you weren't sorrowful for those things, then you wouldn't be transformed. God transforms us by having us deal with that. And it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime battle of dealing with these very things. Notice what it says in verse 5. The reason that we don't continually do that is because we're in Christ and Christ appeared. Notice what it said in verse 5. Know that he has appeared in order to take away sin and in him there is no sin. Well, what he's saying there is the reason that he can take away sin is because there is no sin in him. That's, that's a very important word, take away. Uh, that means I come and I take something bad that's trash and I go and I take it away. And I throw it away. Well, I can't do that because I'm full of sin, right? But Jesus, who is sinless, has every right to and has all the power to take the sin out of your life and my life, carry it to the cross, bear its penalty and guilt and penalty, die for our sins, and to be resurrected in order to give us new life. He couldn't give us new life if there was still sin between ourselves and God. There's a difference between the sinner who just pursues that and loves that and chases that and those of us who are saints, as the New Testament calls us, who fall into sin from time to time and loathe it 
and say, oh, dear God. The reason that we don't, want, we don't want to pursue sin is because Jesus came to destroy it. We don't have to pursue it anymore. We can be free from that. And that's what he's saying there. Then he goes on to say something else. He says in verse 6, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Abiding in Christ is the surest way not to sin. When we abide in him, if you'll remember in John chapter 15, he said, if you abide in me, and if you abide in my word, and if you abide in my love, good things will come out of your life. You'll produce this fruit that remains. He's not just talking about evangelism fruit. He's talking about this purification process, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. He said, if you will abide in me, if you understand that my life is now your life and you abide in that and don't trust your own flesh, don't trust your own mind, don't trust your own will, but let me fill your life by the Holy Spirit and, and the word and the truth of the word of God, then you will be excused from all that. You'll have the power to do this. Paul writes about it, doesn't he, in Romans? And he said, sin shall not be master over you. It's not that we don't sin, but it's not going to ever master us again because we're in Christ and we're abiding in Christ and Jesus Christ appeared to destroy sin, to absolutely destroy it. And then notice what it says in verse seven. Little children, make sure no one deceives you that the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is right, righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And he says it again. Jesus appeared, not only to take away our sins, but to destroy every work of the devil. Every work of the devil. And he said, if you're born of God, you don't practice sin. It's not a repeated thing. You don't pursue it. Because his seed abides in him. Jesus abides in us. And he can't sin because he's born of God. That is, he can't sin under the works of the devil because they've been destroyed. He can't sin in the sense that he pursues that because Jesus has destroyed that for our lives. And although we might have a, a committed sin or an involuntary sin, it's not this lifetime practice of sin. Our behavior will show that. By this, uh, the children of God... Uh, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not righteous. Anyone who you know, doesn't love his brother is not righteous. Those who continually practice sin is what he's saying here. The, those who are continually overcome by sin because of the spirit of lawlessness in their lives, that drive to do what's evil, that drive for self-justification, that drive to use people and not love them, those people are not of God. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, I just want to remind us that the reason that we pursue our experience with Christ is because he came to destroy sin. The sin that you and I face in so many ways have been destroyed. I, I want to say this correctly, and I don't, want to, I, I don't want you to misinterpret me, but when it comes to sinning, God is much more concerned about the relationship that we have and what that sin does to destroy that relationship than he is of the sin itself. Why? Because Jesus has, has destroyed sin. He's forgiven us of all of our sins and continually cleanses us from all of our sins. Yes, we sin, but it's taken care of. Yes, we sin, and that doesn't give us a license to do that. Paul says the same thing. Should we sin because we are free from sin? He said, may it never be. No, in no way should we ever do that. That frees us to live in righteousness. And abiding in Christ allows us to avoid sins. Abiding in his word, abiding in his love, praying, pursuing the things that are true and revealed to us in scripture. And we shouldn't be deceived by sin. 
I want to camp out here for just a minute. We're living in a day and an age where people uh, compromise sin and redefine sin. And what we find in America today is that what we can't control, that sin, we legalize and tax. So if it gets out of control, you know, drug usage. If it gets out of control, alcohol usage. If it gets out of control, you know, the, the redefinition of marriage. We redefine all these things. Here's the problem with redefining sin. If you redefine sin, then you have no cure for it. If you redefine the truth, then all you're left with is a lie. And so we can't compromise with it. You and I can't compromise and just say, well, that's just the way I am. That, that's, that's minimizing sin. That's just the way I am. Or say, well, it doesn't matter. That's maximizing it. It doesn't matter I'm perfect and God's blessed me and I can live any way I want to live. No, that's not the way it is. You can't cure what you redefine. Can you imagine going to a physician and you have cancer and he looks at you and says, look, uh, normally I would say that you have cancer, but really what you need is we just need to take your gallbladder out. Well, that's never going to cure the cancer. You've redefined the condition. And when you redefine the condition, then the cure that you offer is never going to be adequate. So we need to be very careful to call sin, sin, as what God calls it, and to abide under that. And when we sin, we need to confess that truthfully, that this is wrong, I was wrong, what I did was not right, I've disappointed you, I've failed in my relationship with you, all of those things, and we confess our sins. And then once again, it's not up to us, but the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and then to cleanse us from those sins because of what Jesus Christ has done. Well, now I can abide with Christ without the fear of losing something that I created. I can't lose what God has done in my life any more than I can just lose who I am as a creation of the Lord. Well, not only that, we have to understand that sinning is the devil's business. Now, there's some applications of that that are very important for us tonight. Very important for us tonight. Number, no, no, number one, I would say, is we need to spend our time pursuing righteousness and not worrying about sin. You know, the Bible never calls a believer a sinner in the New Testament. Never. It calls us saints. Why is that? Well, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't we just be called sinners? Now, we call ourselves sinners all the time because we sin. If you, if you call yourself a sinner, then you might not be understanding of what God's done for you in Jesus Christ. If you call yourself a saint, you can say, I've been set apart by God, by an act of a sovereign God who saved me in Jesus Christ, and I'm a saint, but I sometimes sin. Yes, that's, that's part of it. But I'm not a sinner who's separated from God with no hope. If you consider yourself a sinner, that's what you'll do. But if you consider yourself as one who is righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and pursue that, you know, the Bible doesn't say, look, think about your sin all the time. Think about all the failures you've had in your past. Think about all those times that blah, blah, blah. You know, no, it doesn't say that. What does it say? Whatever, whatever is pure, what is right, what is good, what is noble, what's holy, think on those things. If you want to think on something tonight, don't think about how many times you failed. Confess your sin and then think about the wonder and the goodness of grace, the wonder and the goodness of God, the wonder and goodness and the power of the cross and the indwelling spirit that we have. Think about those things. Praise the Lord for his benefits to us instead of dwelling on all these failures that we had past and present. Our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. That's why in this effect, we don't sin. 
We don't sin to be separated from God. That's essentially what John is saying. But number next, we don't want to ever redefine sin either. Don't excuse yourself if you're battling with a sin, a secret sin. Most of us battle with secret sins. Our sins are not public. What goes on in my life and the struggles that I have in my life, you don't know about. I don't know about your struggles. Don't need to know it. But those battles that we have within, we can't say at some point, well, you know, that's just the way I am. That's not the way you are. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been born again. You've been raised with him. You're going to have every family characteristic of Christ. You're going to look like him when Jesus comes. And you're in a process of being transformed, as Paul says, from glory to glory. Or as John says, you're purifying yourself. It's that continual process of being more and more like Jesus Christ. Don't negotiate with sin. Don't, don't write it off in your own life and compromise and say, that's just the way I am. And watch this. Don't do it for other people either. You see, I think a lot of times Christian people, especially if we have children that are off the rails or grandchildren that are off the rails or a friend or a father or a mother, we tend to want to say, well, you know, they trusted Jesus Christ in Bible school and, and they got baptized and whatever else. But how are they living? What are they pursuing? What's the spirit of their heart? And when they're doing wrong, they're doing wrong. You don't ever compromise or justify or redefine what God calls to be sin. It's the most dangerous thing in the world in a believer's life. And to extend that to a sinner, extend that to somebody is enabling them to sin with the assurance that God doesn't care, but he does care. It's an affront to a holy God to do that. So we, we acknowledge sin for what it is. We don't run away from it. Because we have the access to God for it to be forgiven and whatever has caused that relationship with God to become unholy, if you will, or us to become not cleansed or clean is erased when we, when we uh, confess our sins rather than compromising our sins. One of the nearest things to being a believer that you know of is what happens when you do sin. Well, most of us feel sorrow. No longer I live. The slightest sin sends me into a tailspin. I just don't like it. I just know that it's not who I am. It, it, it's like trying to speak a foreign language that I don't know. It's like trying to associate with people that I don't really approve of. No, when a believer sins, he, he takes a step back. One of the dangers is, it, is that we feel a disappointment in ourselves and we don't realize what that means to God. Our first step ought to be sorrow because we've somehow affected our relationship to God and through Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross so we don't have to sin. I'm not saying we won't sin, but we don't have to. And so when we do that and we just focus upon ourselves, we forget that there's a, a holy, righteous God who sent his son, the perfect one, to die for our sins and to take away our sins. And so we have violated his trust in our lives. Dying for us, that ought to lead us to sorrow, which leads us to a conviction to say, I must get this away. It seems unusual. I don't know about you, but I've wondered how God could continue to hear that same sin of mine that I've been confessing for all these years and yet welcome me back every time. It's amazing grace is what it is. It's the power of the love of God in a dimension that I have no understanding of whatsoever. But I just know that the Bible says as often as we confess our sins, 
acknowledge him, agree with God that that's, this is a sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the best way to overcome unrighteousness is to practice righteousness. Well, you say, okay, well, what does that mean? It's a practical thing to do here. Number one, you tell the truth all the time. Number two, you challenge every thought that's evil in your mind. And say, whoa, wait a minute. You don't go chasing down the trail of those thoughts that lead you somewhere. That's what lust does. James says lust does that and brings death upon your life. When those things come up in your life, when you have this bad attitude, when you're judging somebody else, when you're doing all these things, just stop it. You know it's wrong, so stop it. Stop it. Sometimes I don't know how you do it, but in my life I have to say, whoa, ma'am, stop that. I have to say it out loud. Because I'm thinking all this, this junk that I'm, I, that's blazing around in my mind. And if I just say I shouldn't do that, that's different from saying I'm not going to do that. We have the power to say stop. Stop. When the devil comes upon us for temptation, we have the power to say, get behind me. I'm going to resist you because I'm a child of God. I've got every benefit of the salvation, every benefit of the power, every benefit of the character of God in Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will resist you in this temptation. You might as well leave me alone and go somewhere else. That's what you do practically. You abide in Christ by reading the Word of God. You can't neglect the reading of the Word of God. You abide in Christ by coming into the fellowship of the church. You can't neglect a church attendance. You can't do it. You can't do it and be strong. It will not happen. What you're doing is compromising what the Word of God says as to where you need to be at least once a week. You can't do it and be strong. And you can't do it by not serving and just soaking. There are people all over the place that know a lot and they're you know, studying this and going here and studying that. Listen, if you're a child of God, you have a deep love for the people of God, especially the people of God where you attend locally and you serve those people and you love those people. You, you do acts of dem, uh, demonstrated love to those people. No matter how you feel about it, you do those things. You get in the counsel of the godly. You don't sit in the counsel of the scornful and the ungodly. You choose your people. You choose your friends. You choose who's going to influence you. Every time you eat with somebody and every time you talk with somebody, they're influencing you and you're influencing them. I want to be with the people who will build my life. I may have to be with people who won't do that, but I want to be with the people who will build my life, those trusted friends, your spouse, your wife, your husband, your parents, trusted people who will speak into your life the truth of God, who believe in you and who know you for who you are. You practice that. You've been given this great gift of salvation. And here's the question. What are you doing with it? I shared this illustration a few weeks ago out at the uh, gathering. Uh, when I was about, oh, 15 years old, uh, a man knocked on our front door who worked for my father and he had an old Epiphone guitar. And he said, I heard that you are interested in learning how to play the guitar. And he said, I'm going to loan you this guitar until you can play it and or until you get your own. But, but I'd, really like, I'd really like this to be a gift to you for you to learn to play it. Well, you know, many gifts have been given, but what are you going to do with it? So I looked at that guitar and it was a mystery. Six strings, made no sense whatsoever, you know. Uh, I looked at the piano and did the notes over there and the notes over here didn't seem, you know, I tried to do those chords and my hands were stiff and the fingers didn't work right and all. But I was given a gift. And the only question was, what was I going to do with it? Was I going to learn to play it and, 
and have the joy of making the music, maybe playing in a band or just playing by myself or whatever. Was I, was I going to take that gift and do something with the gift? Well, it's the same way with salvation. Salvation is a gift. You didn't ask for it, didn't earn it. The Bible says in John, the first chapter, that we are born again, not by the will of man, not by blood or man or the will of man, but by God. He gave us the right to become his children. What are you doing with it? We can fold into sin and just say, well, I'm no good. And that's not what he's saying. What do you mean you're no good? Jesus Christ came to die for you. What do you mean that's just the way you are? He destroys sin. Let him destroy it in your life. What, what, what do you mean? Well, what do you mean the devil's after you? Resist him. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil. He said the devil's cast down. I've appeared. That, that's what's happened here. He gives us the power. What I do with that gift is very important. If I take the gift of salvation and I don't nurture that gift, if I don't grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, if I don't study the word of God, if I don't witness, if I don't serve, if I don't do those things, I'm just acting like a person who never had anything to happen whatsoever. You, you know how this works. You see somebody living a life that's just ungodly. And maybe you or somebody else challenges them on that and they say, well, you look, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Baptist. I got saved. I, when I was 10 years old, I was baptized. John says, if you don't live that life, if you haven't pursued that life, you won't live that life. And if you don't live that life, it's proof positive you don't have that life. So we've been given this gift. What are we going to do with it? Well, the first thing I want to do with it is thank God for it. Amen. You want to say, Lord, thank you for it. I know I can't lose it. Simon Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's like an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. It's given to you. And it can't be taken away. It can't be ruined. This seat in heaven, this mansion in heaven that John talks about and Paul talks about is secure for us because God keeps it that way. I want to thank God for it. And then I want to live that life that this gift represents, this gift of salvation, wherever that life leads me. Whatever the gifts of the Spirit are, I want to utilize those gifts. I want to be on mission with the Lord. I want to read his word to know his truth. I want to fall deeper in love with Jesus and deeper in love with God. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. It's a, it's a message that's as old as the Bible. God loves us and has provided a way for us to live with him in righteousness. Let's claim our birthright and pursue righteousness and not spend all our time worrying about the sins that we may or may not have committed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, for saving us by your love and mercy and grace. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would just allow us to see the depths of what this says. We don't want to be known as sinners. We want to be known as those who are pure, being purified by your grace, just like we were saved by your grace. People confident that we're going to be with you forever. And we're going to be like Christ because that is our destiny. You have given to each of us a gift of salvation. You've given it to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. It's a gift from your own hand. And we have received that gift in faith, by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. We're not boasting in that. We're rejoicing in that. And so would you take for each of us our gifts of salvation and let us maximize those gifts. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and be 
sanctified, that we might be justified. Father, if there's one person in this auditorium tonight who has not had that gift of being born again, I pray that your spirit will fall upon them. And in this service alone, they will realize that it's through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone that we have this gift of becoming who you intended for us to be, a gift we call salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.